This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research and Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, everyone knows you're a very emotional, affective man. Okay. Particularly at commercials. Like, I feel like commercials really start to get me. <laughs> like, cheesy commercials, like, make you... Of course, the emotions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And some songs, like, uh, they get me in the right time or the... Yeah, no. I expected songs more. Commercials is surprising. But... Yeah, actually, I don't actually listen to commercials at all. I don't I don't watch commercials that often, so I don't really know why they would make me sad. I don't, I don't know. Consumerism makes makes us all a little sad, maybe somewhere <laughs> in our soul. Are you emotional in the in in the classroom in the social studies classroom? And because we talk about like really serious stuff, yeah. We spend a lot of time with students, and we've you know we've talked about the role of emotion. I think of our our friend Mark Helmsing, right? Who like I feel like talked about affective emotion on this podcast and before. And I mean, do you do you how does emotion play out in your classroom? That is not something that I've really thought about out that much it's like like shouldn't we as teachers and students like show anger or frustration or you know what i'm joy when we about, study the past right oh, the sure, past no. is we're studying like the most momentous things in human history right and sometimes they're terrible and sometimes they're beautiful like shouldn't we feel that emotion when we study these things so you can tell when I've done like my own research on something in class, like not that I don't like, I, like when I've really kind of gone deep on something in class because I get super excited about it. And like, I, yeah, it's almost downright giddiness because like, I get like really keyed up about like little things or, or these things that I've kind of discovered. I try like, we're right now we're doing research paper stuff and I know I do it every year, but like, I try to like, demonstrate or I try to I do talk about like how it can be really frustrating and how when you find something and I tell the story about when I shouted for joy in the basement of the or in the stacks of the library and someone shushed me and I understood but I said but I found what I needed and then that student also understood and so it was a it was a joyous moment but that's more of personal stuff I don't like in terms of like reacting to what we've been covered yeah I feel like there are times when we've been like looking at something that, yeah, I mean, it's sad. And so we do, you know, talk about that. We discuss like different genocides and obviously that's really, I mean, it's tragic. You can't walk away and not be affected by it. You can't talk about it and not be affected by it. And so I feel like, yeah, even though sometimes I am even killed, I definitely do show emotion about things in class. Well, and I mean, I think sometimes when we, again, like are, showing emotions about the past it's because the people that time had real emotions about it too and that's like a it's something that's maybe hard to communicate right like we look at primary documents in in social studies classes we we read accounts but like unless you're actually getting to read a larger narrative 
you know, from mm-hmm. someone at the time here, it's kind of hard to think about like, how did they feel moment to moment? How did different people, historical actors feel in those moments? And, <laughs> and I think, I think documentaries and it's like a, a thing because it shouldn't, we shouldn't need like a documentary, but I think like in documentaries or if we watch a movie, that's a lot of times where people feel the emotion because you see a lot of the pain and anguish like in action form right or like in an immediacy so i've thought when i've showed stuff about the past that's maybe when it's come out i one time i think i was oh we're it had something it was u.s history something about oh documents that lincoln wanted when he was president to kind of figure out so there was like a speech a couple speeches from like i think one was not from henry clay but someone like henry clay I'm going to hope my students never hear this because I'm forgetting uh, who this uh, was from. They definitely, oh, Matthew Webster, Webster, Daniel Webster, definitely Andrew Jackson, because that's one of the things he wanted. And so I made them read it out loud. And I was like, no emotion. How does it feel? How does it feel? Like, think about, these are speeches. Like this guy gave this speech because he was like, what is he trying to say? Think about how you can do it and then interpret it. The one thing that they really like to do, because they're reading a speech by Andrew Jackson, which he was very angry. They definitely got the anger part of it. And when they didn't, I made them redo it. That reminds me of the Zen Education Project has live readings of historical uh, speeches. And I, I always remember it. I've used before in class, Kerry Washington's reading of Sojourner Truth and I, a woman's speech. No kidding. Um, I actually use that to like open my social studies and methods class, kind of think about like whose perspectives are we taking and how do we look at history and how we're doing this. So, and it's emotional. And so I think feeling emotions as a teacher and as a student makes sense because the past is emotional. And so I'm very curious in topics that study that, but I don't really know. I haven't thought about it enough to really know how to go about uncovering emotions in the past. So we need somebody who's done their homework Who's who's studied this? Who's prepared? Who can inform you us? Did it again. Teach us a little bit. We brought in a guest every time. So we are excited to welcome into the podcast Brittany Jones. Welcome. Hi everyone. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. We're thrilled to have you here. Do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are? Who is Brittany L. Jones? <laughs> who is Brittany? Well, Brittany is a current doctoral candidate at Michigan State University. I'll be graduating this year in May. So that's exciting. Mm. Yes. And prior to joining Michigan State, I was a high school social studies teacher in Richmond Public Schools in Virginia. Tell us a little bit more about what was your teaching experience like? What grades did you teach? What subjects did you teach? Because I'm really interested as we get into your topic to think about what your background is that may have informed you in what you ended up researching. Absolutely. So I think When I think about why I became a teacher, I have to think about my parents. Both of my parents were elementary school teachers. My dad taught upper L and my mom was a special ed teacher. So I feel like teaching is just in my blood, but I absolutely loved teaching. I taught world history one and two government and U.S. history. So basically ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade here in Virginia. Absolutely loved it. So, Brittany, before we get into your topic, let's talk about some emotion in the classroom. Where did you see emotion in in your classroom? Oh, that's such a great question. So I had all the emotion, right? The teacher, I was emotional. I was an emotional teacher because I was excited about history. But I taught at a predominantly Black school. And my students, we would get into these really actually heavy conversations about racism and anti-Blackness. 
And my students would often talk about the ways in which they experienced and felt anti-Blackness in the present, but how those same feelings of anti-Blackness were never historicized in what we taught. And so we would learn about um, anti-Blackness in the past, but we never learned about the emotions that those people felt when they experienced anti-Blackness. So for students, it came, it became less relevant for them because they were discussing how they feel these things in the present, but it was never talked about how Black folks feel or felt anti-Blackness in the past. Um, so there was like this disconnect between anti-Blackness happens in both the past and the present, but how did they feel? Well, that is a great lead into discussing the research you did and actually gives a explains probably at least some motivation for doing this, this study. And so you wrote uh, an article called Feeling Fear as Power and Oppression, an Examination of Black and White Fear in Virginia's U.S. History Standards and Curriculum Framework. And it was published in Theory and Research in Social Education. So congratulations on your publication. Thank you. So can you tell us about this study and this project? Yeah, I can. So if we could just kind of rewind back to the background, this project actually started in 2020, right? The infamous year of 2020, where anti-Blackness was so incredibly on display. People were getting killed back to back to back to back. And I distinctly remember being at the TV and watching George Floyd. And the headlines were really interesting because it always talked about how he was incessantly crying out for his mother and how Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck, right? He was in pain. And so we always saw that the knee was on George Floyd's neck. He was in pain. And we always heard that he was crying out for his mother. And this was so much on display, but we never heard about any emotions tied to him. So even when he was suffering, we never heard about his fear or his pain, but we did hear about Derek Chauvin's fear, right? We heard that he was applying so much pressure to George Floyd because he was fearful that George Floyd might do something to him. And so this idea of Black people suffering but never experiencing fear um, is not something that's specific to 2020. It's a pattern that we see throughout history. And as I was looking at that all the time on TV, I kind of wondered like, okay, I wonder how we teach about fear in US history. And because I taught in Virginia, I taught from the standards, I knew that the word fear had been mentioned. So I wanted to go back to the standards and kind of analyze not just who had fear, but how fear functioned. So that's kind of how I got into the study. So what did I end up doing? I looked at Virginia standards. And if you follow the news, you know that Virginia standards is an absolute mess right now. They've gone under three different revisions for their social studies standards because no one can agree on uh, what should be included in the standards. But anyways, that's other another podcast. So I went to the standards and I wanted to do a discourse analysis of the word fear. And what I ended up finding was that fear was mentioned 12 times in the standards. And each time fear was mentioned, it was attributed to white people or descriptors of white people. And so I saw that and I was like, oh, I know that black folks got to fear too, because if white people can fear 12 times, then certainly black people can fear 12 times. So first I wanted to look for words 
that would describe Black people's fear. So words like enslavement, slavery, Jim Crow, lynching. Those words show up in Virginia standards over 100 times. Fear is associated with those words zero times. And when I saw that discrepancy, I wanted to go back then to look at how fear functioned. And this was amazing how it functioned. Every time white people or descriptors of white people, such as like white Southerners, had fear, it was literally a comma that justified them enacting violence against someone. So when white folks had fear, they also were justified in enacting violence. It was rationalized, their fear. But Black folks who suffered over 100 times never, ever were able to fear. And that's the summary, if you will, of that study. And you've seen this. I mean, the tie between the past and the present is like depressing. I mean, because it's not it's not even just the most recent case. I mean, I immediately thought of the Michael Brown case where the officer he like literally described him like as a monster who is in fear of. And this is an officer with a weapon who's trained, who whose fear was explained. And I feel like I didn't hear that about Michael Brown getting to experience fear from an officer. And so to see how that our this Virginia standards just, you know, reify or like, you know, support this concept of white fears. Can you tell us about some examples from your study that stood out to you? Yes. So the first example, one of the first examples that you see in the standards is a description of white people fearing a powerful government. So that's one of the first examples that you see how white fear is enacting, right? And so when white people feared a powerful government, they did something about it. So there's power when white people were associated with fear. Another example would be white fear of enslaved rebellions led to harsher fugitive slave laws. So again, you have white people experiencing fear and they did something about it, which ended up being violence towards enslaved and free black people. Other examples are Americans and they use the term Americans in a time where not everyone was considered an American, not everyone was afforded full citizenship rights. So Americans feared Japanese Americans. So they were put in internment camps, right? And so this idea of when white people fear, not only is violence enacted, but it's also justified occurs all throughout history. Wait, so it said that in the standards that Americans feared Japanese Americans? Yes. So it says Japanese Americans were relocated to internment camps as a result of strong anti-Japanese prejudice and the fear that Japanese Americans were aiding the enemy. Right. And so this is this is a really profound study because it shows you like these distortions that happen in history that uphold like white supremacy. Because I often think about why were, you know, slave rebellions, why are those not framed as patriotic? You know, why are those not framed as as moving towards, you know, a multiracial democracy, which everyone claims they stand for. But we see so much more of like this justifying white supremacist fears of black people, you know, blackness at the time. And you don't see how those led to attempts at revolution, whether it's Nat Turner's or other ones. And so and so you just come out with this. It's it when you think about it that way, it just like blows my mind. 
and feel, I don't know, it feels like it's propaganda, right? Like to uphold like the status quo in the state. So did did you, when you were doing this study, were you surprised by the findings? Was it like worse than you thought it would be? Or did you kind of expect that this was going to be the case because your familiarity with with probably the problems with the standards going before? That's a great question. I think that I was actually surprised that this type of ideology was actually codified in standards that teachers are contractually bound to teach. And I'll say myself, I taught from these standards for multiple years and never really stopped to think about what I was teaching my students. So I used this rhetoric with my students all the time. And it wasn't until 2020, I was in grad school where I actually was able to analyze and really think about what it meant when Black people suffered, but were not able to fear. And when white people feared, it was always justified. So it, it acted as power. Just going through the examples in here is, re- is really profound to me. And I'm, I'm looking at how it is something I didn't notice either, right? Like, I don't think I noticed how how little people's emotions who are fighting to to challenge oppression, but who are very vulnerable to be targeted by it is expressed in anything. You, you often, it seems to me like you get a lot of the civil rights actors who are just seen as these strong, heroic figures. And maybe this goes back to some of the other scholarship, the way they're kind of treated as, you know, messianic figures as uh, Ashley Woodson's scholarship in TRSC shows. And you see that they're like these strong figures, but you don't often think about like what they felt in fighting for this and how vulnerable they knew they were when people around them often were being targeted, you know, lynched, killed, all these, all all the worst things that are possible. And I'm just kind of, yeah, I'm I'm trying to, trying to wrestle with how it, how easy, how easy it is to not notice this when you're teaching every day. That's not really a question. I'm just like coming to terms with your study and it's really hitting. Yeah. Something that I've thought a lot about and have been thinking about in my own work now as this study is almost one year old is the way that racialized emotions, emotions specifically hold power, but just in different ways. So in thinking about Black fear, Black fear oftentimes leads to Black resistance. So when Black people feared, they did not just sit there and do nothing. Black fear oftentimes led to Black people actually doing something, actually expressing patriotism and civic agency and resistance. And I think what's really interesting is that when we think about racialized emotions, which is what I'm really thinking about now in my own research. And I define racialized emotions as the very specific ways our racialized identities impact how we emotionally respond to things and our emotional experiences to things. And so something I've been thinking about is Black fear a lot, but I've also been thinking about white rage and white fear because oftentimes white fear comes first, white fear of losing power, And then white rage happens when whiteness does something about it. So we see white rage when, as a response to massive resistance, particularly in Virginia, um, white people did not want to desegregate schools. So they turned rageful and that ended up in systemic policies like massive resistance. And so racialized emotions affect history. 
And I think earlier in the episode, you all were talking about how do we teach these emotions? I think thinking about critically analyzing historical sources for these like racialized emotions is one way to think about how to teach it that show how emotions really impact systemic policies. You have me reflecting back. We on episode 93, we had Erica Armstrong Dunbar on and we use her book, Never Caught, which is about the life of Ona Judge in our classes here. And I think about how maybe one of the things in our discussions in our class that needed to come out was Martha Washington's emotions, because it comes out in the book, but I don't think we ever named what it was, but, but Martha was incredibly resistant to even like meeting or being around abolitionists, but it's just making me reflect on how like important it would maybe be to name what Martha was feeling, uh, you know, in those times, the, how white rage is the, probably the right term for what she was expressing and how Ona lived with her fear for a long time before acting on it. Right. And thinking about that complexity of that. And I just feel like bringing that out and talking about that in those personal terms would have helped my students process it in a different way than if we didn't name it, which I don't think we ever did. One of the things that makes me that you were talking about your students and how they don't like, they feel this like anti-blackness, but they don't see in the curriculum, but it's they, like, it's in history. And just like you said, like they, they did resist, but that's never a part of the conversation. And so that's just more history being swept under. So of course, of course, there's going to be a big disconnect. And I don't, I don't want to mean to jump forward, but like, how can we do better? Like what, 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 what suggestions do you have for people who are wrestling with this? And obviously looking at your standards is a good place to start. Yeah, it's a great question. I've been thinking about what this research, particularly this article looks like in practice. And I've been developing some lesson plans on what it looks like to critically analyze sources for racialized emotions. And something, there's tons of historical sources that really speak to emotions, specifically racialized emotions. And we can look at King's, everyone looks at King's, I have a dream speech, and he certainly speaks to emotions in that. But I think Another great resource from him is a letter from a Birmingham jail where he specifically talks about fear and like what it means for black folks to fear. And it's not a fear of, oh, I'm scared. It's a fear of I'm empowered and I need to do something. So what does it mean for black folks to fear in U.S. history is one way to start. There's Fannie Lou Hamer had her speech at the Democratic National Convention. She talks about fear, the fear she felt when trying to go register to vote, right? And so if we have students analyze for the feelings that are portrayed in these sources, we can also then have students think about, well, how do these emotions act as catalysts for change? How do these emotions act as catalysts for resistance? How do these emotions act as a catalyst to enact systemic racism um, and other policies? So I think that kind of where I would suggest folks start when wanting to do this kind of emotional work. You also, how do we wrestle with also how these emotions maybe prevented change too, right? Like that they, they can become a real barrier barrier because fear is really, it's real and it's a natural human reaction when, when you're in fear to not 
try to take action, to not try to like make more change. And so I think people who are who are trying to make change can often feel that, right? And maybe it prevents a lot of people. How do we talk about those moments maybe for a lot of people who felt like they couldn't make change because the fear was overwhelming? Is that something you delved into? So that's a great point. And I think that speaking to Ashley Woodson's article about how students could not relate to those Black civil rights figures because they seem so distant from the students. I think talking about fear as not wanting to enact change can actually amplify folks' humanity, right? So a lot of times these civil rights figures, as Ashley says, are depicted as messianic and heroic. And students might look at that and say, I can't, I can't do that. I, I can't enact civic change in the ways that they did. But if we talk about Black folks and all their humanity and all the emotions that they have, then these people become much more realistic for students and much more relatable. So I think talking about emotions is also a way to kind of amplify Black humanity. What else do researchers need to do around this work? What did, what did you notice? What are the gaps that we really need to explore? Because I think you're really hitting on, uh, on something important here that that we all need to keep exploring. So what advice do you have for, for scholars pursuing this? I think we shouldn't shy away from emotions. We shouldn't be too scared to shy away from emotions. I think there's emotions might be a taboo in history education. There are scholars that do emotional work, but I think folks should be more open to thinking about the role of emotions in history because emotions are so important to historical change. So why are we not talking about how to teach through that? And emotions are relatable because we all have them, including students, including the littlest of humans. So why are we not using that to teach, particularly to teach history? They're like sweet emotions. Brittany L. George, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like you gave us a lot to chew on. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? So listeners can follow me at lovejones underscore six on Twitter. I tweet about academic stuff. I tweet about Real Housewives as well. So fair warning. You get it all. So yeah, if you if you if that's a Venn diagram and you have both of those interests, this is the premier account to follow. So we will follow you there. Um, of course, we'll have all of your articles and notes in their show notes, and uh, we'll hopefully be able to continue following your work as as you continue to produce great stuff. So thank you so much for joining us today, and we will continue the discussion on Twitter and wherever else you know we end up with the state of Twitter these days. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, hit us up on Twitter at Divisions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, and this is most importantly, tell your friends to subscribe. And you can subscribe too on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you didn't know yet, we have feelings and, you know, you make us feel good when you give us a five-star review, make us feel bad when you don't. So We've got go ahead feelings. and go ahead and do, yeah, get that five-star review. We would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School Zach and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can still, for the time being, find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kratka. And I'm always around, but never there. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. <laughs>